This is Metrics and Chill, where you'll learn practical strategies to drive consistent and predictable growth. Hey everyone, this episode is a special episode taken from a webinar that our CEO Pete Caputa did with Chart Mogul on lessons learned building your company from zero to 10 million in annual recurring revenue. He sits down alongside a fireside chat with Joram Vingarda, founder of Deal Room, where they talk about pitfalls that they learn to avoid, lessons they learned in building to 10 million, advice for other companies trying to do the same, along with a ton more. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Sarah Archer, and I run sales at Chartmogul. Um, Pete and Yoram uh, are going to introduce themselves, maybe in that order, and then we're going to just dive right into it. I've got a few questions prepared on the papers in front of me, and we'll uh, share some advice, some stories, some challenges um, that both of these um, excellent people have uh, encountered uh, over the years. So, so Pete, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Cool. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for the intro. Um, Pete Caputa, uh, currently CEO of Databox, analytics software company, uh, helping about 3,000 companies consolidate all their performance data into one spot so they can report and uh, and monitor and, and do all a bunch of other funky stuff to help them improve their performance. Uh, before that, I started uh, my first business around 2001, uh, software business, did that for a while, ended up... Um, circuitously meeting uh, the founders of uh, HubSpot in uh, 2006 uh, and ended up joining HubSpot in 2007 uh, as the 15th employee, built the uh, HubSpot Solutions, what's now called the HubSpot Solutions Partner Program there. I built it from zero to about $130 million in annual revenue. Um, decided to then I wanted to be an entrepreneur again. So I ended up uh, started to talk to VCs, ended up meeting the founder of Databox uh, and they were going through a bit of a pivot and some changes. So I ended up joining as CEO of Databox. Uh, and that was about seven years ago. Uh, so that's my background. Uh, for fun, uh, big soccer, soccer plant fan, or as you guys like to say, uh, football. Um, and uh, and Gardner. How's that? Good? Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. Yoram, your, your turn. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, Yoram Vangarda, I'm the founder and CEO of Deal Room. Um, we're essentially a startup database. So I see there's a lot of audience from the US where you can think of us as a European crunch base. Um, we're very well known in Europe. I think most of the top VC firms use our data to identify promising companies. We work with a lot of big tech companies on their innovation strategy. Uh, and we also work with a lot of governments around the world to kind of map out the, their tech ecosystem together. Uh, so I started the company 10 years ago. <clears throat> uh, we're based in Amsterdam. Um, my background is in finance. I used to be an investment banker uh, at Lehman Brothers before I started the room. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for making time to, to prepare and participate in this exercise. I tease, um, my my friends and my partner and I say occasionally I, I I flirt with the idea of running my own company, um, but I think I'm a better hired gun, mm -hmm. um, so I'm always excited to talk, um, you know, to to founders and CEOs who are you know the visionaries behind uh, the building over over many many years, um, and so I guess that's a reasonable question uh, just to to get us into things, you know. Um, you are, you know, you've been doing this for, for more than 10 years. What inspired you to, to take the leap to become a founder um, and CEO? 
Yeah, so I mean, I could say that I'm like passionate about uh, startup ecosystems or about corporate finance, and I think that's that's definitely true. But I think the deeper underlying reason for doing something and and sticking with it is that you somehow, or at least for me, to have this urge to to prove myself to myself and and to others, throw myself in the deep and and uh, and, and 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 show that I can, can uh, climb out. That kind of thing. Mm, okay, uh, Pete, you've got the the HubSpot experience, but then you know decided that you wanted to to have at it on your own and do something different. So uh, you know what what motivated that? Yeah, well, unlike you, I'm not a very good hired gun. I don't take direction very well. Um, at HubSpot, it was very entrepreneurial in in the early days, and I was able to find uh, you know a piece of the business that I could develop somewhat autonomously, you know, within some guardrails as well. Um, but in the early days, like I basically built, a, you know, a program, a team, and obviously it was funded by HubSpot and lived inside HubSpot, but I got to make a lot of the strategic decisions on how to do it. As that mm -hmm. program got really big um, and, a, you know, an important part of the business, um, it also uh, it didn't, it didn't, uh, uh, I, I lost a bit of control for a variety of reasons that probably we could get into but probably off subject um and so i i wanted to do it again like i had started a business earlier and set the vision for that business and and um where the way my brain works is like i'm thinking about what should what i want to build the next five to ten years and that's what my brain just naturally obsesses over uh and so i don't i realized that i couldn't do that inside of another company where there's another ceo setting a vision that's different than the one i wanted to build and so that's really what drives me. It's less about the, the money or the glory, or even it's really just about inventing that thing that I think should exist in the world. Okay, uh, maybe a follow-up question for you, Pete. Like, you know, you've been um, building DataBox for seven years and counting. Um, how has you know how has that you know changed? Is is it is it the same as uh, you know when you when you started, or you know ha has um, uh, yeah. Uh, have you taken any any major turns, uh, one direction or another? Um, yeah. So we did a lot of things from the beginning that really helped us scale. Um, and and I'd say more recently we've made changes, but I think like the we stayed true to some of the same stuff that we've done. So like we've always been focused on product led growth. Um, that's been mm -hmm. a key part of our success. Um, we've also um, always been focused on uh, content marketing and and actually a specific way that we do it where we're marketing with our audience and creating content with our audience. Um, and then um, I would say that like we've we've kind of carved out a piece of the market by being better in certain ways um, than some of our con competition. Um, and like those three things, I would say, and I can get into details, but those three things would be, would be the key. One thing that's interesting or challenging about our business is that um, the average contract value is quite low. Like our average mm -hmm. contract value is around two hundred and some dollars a month, two hundred twenty dollars a month. Um, and like uh, like building a business with a relatively also complex product to build and also a complex product to set up for a user uh, is challenging. Um, and so leaning into product like growth instead of sales like growth, um, leaning into um, trying to make it better in certain ways so that it stands out for a certain segment of the customer base or the, the certain se segment of the market is really important. 
Um, and so, yeah, I'd say that we've kind of stayed true to that. Over time, we've evolved um, and we've kind of taken some bigger swings. Um, but um, but those three things are, are we stay pretty true to. Grand. Okay. Yeah. I definitely want to dig into, you know, some things around, you know, uh, being opinionated about what you're good mm -hmm. at and, sure. and maybe some of the go-to-market, you know, strategy and tactic changes, but maybe first let's hear from Yoram because it's my understanding um, that like maybe what, maybe what you started out your idea initially um, changed. Um, and so the space you're in now is a, a little bit differently, um, a little bit different uh, rather than, than your initial thought and ambition. So would you give us some context there? Yeah, so Deal Rooms started, and that's where our name comes from, Deal Room. We wanted to create this kind of platform where VCs and startups could meet online and hash out uh, deals. Um, so it was kind of a European angel list more than a European crunch base in, in the beginning. Uh, and for a ton of different reasons that just didn't get off the ground, um, at some point, someone advised me like, hey, you know, to get a marketplace going, um, you should just already start adding data about startups so that people at least have a reason to visit your website. Mm -hmm. uh, so I started doing that and, and we collected the kind of nice data set of the best European startups. Um, the platform still didn't get off the ground, but at some point, some guy from uh actually from the us asked if he could buy the data from us and uh, now we were completely out of cash so i immediately said yes so that was <laughs> our, our first data client um and i think around the same time a friend of mine uh said hey you know the city of amsterdam is also is looking for someone to to pitch ideas about what they should do with their startup ecosystem and so at the same time i pitched to them the idea to create a map of Amsterdam cities, it was pretty out of pretty much out of desperation. But those two business model, those two things became our two products, basically. So it was more out of really out of uh, it wasn't like a, a grand plan. Uh, it just happened. Ah, but you were listening to like your customers and you were persistent as like, uh, there's a great spin on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Uh, for sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen to your customers, absolutely. Yeah. Have you have you read uh, Andrew Chen's Cold Start Problem, the book, Yoram? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah. It's a it's a great book. Um, but in it, in there, he talks about building the hard side of the network, um, yeah. and you know, depending on the marketplace or the network you're building, um, it could change. But I think you built the hard side of the network. Um, but you got to build one manually. Almost is the way his book is written. Is like you have to do that manually. Like with Uber, they had to build because uh, he was an uber uh they had to build the hard side of the network which was the drivers because without drivers nobody will ever book a thing and then you got to have a critical mass of drivers so that there's enough availability and they can be there quick enough for to pick someone up um and so it seems like you built the hard side of the of the network and then it became valuable yeah mm -hmm. that's interesting um grand well excited to get into it um you know, ChartMogul is a B2B uh, subscription analytics offering for businesses that want to track, you know, top line KPI metrics, MRR, churn, lifetime value. And um, we just recently published uh, about a month ago, a growth benchmark report that suggests uh, based on the anonymous aggregated data that we have access to, you know, a mere 13% of 
SaaS or software businesses ever sort of cross this $10 million um, ARR milestone. And, you know, that yeah. doesn't account for all the folks that wash out of that data set entirely. Yeah. Um, and so um, I guess, you know, I, I'm always, I, I come in a little bit later, um, uh, not, the, not the $0 days or the first customer necessarily. Yeah. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that time period. Um, yeah. You know, like what were the key challenges um, uh, that you faced your, um, like during these early days of taking this first paying customer and then getting it into the beginnings of like a more repeatable model. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So we, once we made this pivot to selling data, we immediately had a couple of very big competitors, uh, with mm -hmm. a lot more data, uh, like companies like PitchBook and, and CB insights. Um, and I think one of the things that I started doing intuitively was start blogging and, and writing. And I think it was also, I don't know, I can just highly recommend doing that in the early days because you can show mm -hmm. your passion and it's also kind of uh, uh, therapeutic, I think, as a founder to, to write. Yeah. Um, and people just start noticing like, hey, this, this person really cares about what they are doing. And it's something that big companies can't really do also. Like at least you don't have a scale disadvantage. So I think once I started doing that after already after a few blog posts, one really got noticed by some big publications it was a bit of luck, I guess. But there was like one of those moments where I thought, hey, maybe this is going to work actually, because uh, we suddenly have like our like our 15 minutes of fame at least. Maybe we can turn that into something else. That's kind of how it how it got started. When was that, Joran? When did you start that? Uh, that was, I think, two thousand fifteen or something. So two years in, maybe that that that, that happened. That's cool. No. Yeah. Hey, just a quick interruption. In past episodes, you've heard guests give advice like. The first step is just like actually measuring and monitoring, right? Which sounds very fundamental, but a lot of companies don't even do that, right? If you ask for like, hey, do you have a monthly kind of report of like what's happening in the funnel? It's like, oh, well, we have this over here and we have this over here and we have the traffic data and GA. So the first thing I think is like build out, you know, a presentation uh, that you're updating every single month. Or it's way easier if you have all this stuff being centralized somewhere and can look at it. And I promise that's completely unprompted. We try to book smart B2B leaders and learn how they're driving more predictable growth, and they end up sharing advice like that. And Databox makes it easy to do all of that and more. You can track your marketing, sales, revenue, and CS performance all in one place. It lets you build custom dashboards and view metrics from over 80 tools side by side. You can schedule PDF reports that automatically update your data in real time and send to your team or your clients. You can even set up custom Slack alerts that alert you when you hit your goals or when numbers spike or dip. If you want to try it totally free, just go to databox.com or click the link in the show notes. Okay, back to the episode. Interesting. Yeah, I think like uh, investing in content early was a really strong decision for ChartMongo. Um, it's not yeah, something exactly. that I would have expected to be such a driver. But what happened 
was, um, I've been with Charmable since we were like 20, 23, 24 people. And people would say, for a while, I ran all of marketing at Chartmongle, which is sort of laughable now, considering we have like an eight-person team and I didn't know like a UTM from, you know, anything else. Um, but uh, we'd go to these conferences and people would be like, oh, like Chartmongle, like I know you're a brand, I know your business. Uh, we want to do like partner marketing with you. This was like five years ago, right? And I would be like, oh, it's, our marketing team is one person. It's me, like part time. And they were like, oh, we are so surprised. We thought you were a much bigger business. Yeah. And I think like in early days, this was a big learning for me. I was like, um, I was like, oh, investing in, in in content and brand can be this like really useful differentiator. But it's a huge time suck. It's like, like to to write like quality quality things is, is really challenging i feel so yeah. pete i don't know how you see it but that, that's definitely my reaction to, to what yeah, you're yeah. shared. yes we're, so we're similar obviously um i think everybody probably you you probably both know hubspot's history to some degree and obviously content marketing or inbound marketing was a big driver of the business um and so you know i was i was early enough where like anybody was allowed to write on the blog so i wrote on the blog back in 2007 and some of those articles still rank and um and so totally a believer of content marketing um and so at databox we did the same thing we like in fact all we do is content marketing we do any paid advertising um or anything um and we don't do any out outbound nothing so it's 100 percent based on on content marketing but we had a unique challenge in that like yeah we could write about our product but the better way to attract people in was to write about the tools that we integrate with, like uh, HubSpot or Google Analytics and now Chartmogul, right? Because we now have integration. Um, and so when we write about those other products, it attracts people that might want to use our product to consolidate their, you know, the view of all of their performance from across tools. And um, and so, but we realized like there's no way we could be an expert on that. So what we did, we started crowdsourcing content. And so we've crowdsourced like 1400 pieces of content over the last six years long form content um, and that's helped us to grow to like a, a more than a quarter million of sessions a month uh, and about uh, 6,000 signups for our free product every month. And so for us, like, yeah, without content marketing and kind of crowdsourcing content, like we wouldn't, I wouldn't be talking to you here today. I might be talking to you, but not under these situ this situation. So you're doing like, uh, you're doing content marketing, but also sort of like this like PLG conversion uh, you know, style before PLG was like PLG, sounds like. Yeah, I, PLG's been around for a, a little while, but yes, we, so we figured out that we could basically take and write content around, say, Google Analytics or HubSpot, and then we have calls to action that are basically try our free, uh, free product, and in that content that we write about HubSpot is a HubSpot CRM dashboard, for example, and so if somebody's reading on our blog about how to improve X, Y, Z metric in your, you know, in, Hub, in your sales process with HubSpot CRM, and then they see, hey, free HubSpot CRM dashboard to see how you're performing. It's literally like one click, you auth authenticate into HubSpot and it returns your data. And so it's a very quick time to value. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's how we generate a lot of our our signups um, is is through that through that process uh, and just repeating that. And since then we have other points of conversion we actually have a free tool where people can benchmark their performance you 
with data from across 70 different tools. Um, and then um, we also have a, about to launch actually a metric library where we we've, we've taken metrics that are available in other tools that we integrate with and we've defined every metric and there's like 3,400 and some metrics that we've um, recreated in our product that we can share content about to give people definitions and, and of, of metrics and how to improve certain metrics and things like that. So yeah, so we've done these kind of like PLG style conversion paths uh, alongside the top of the funnel content that we crowdsource and that's worked very well for us. And to your point, we've done it with a very small team. So um, basically four marketers um, that, oh. at this point. That's interesting. Um, maybe a question for the both of you, because so far we've talked a little bit about content brand, you know, um, getting an idea off the ground and starting to validate it. How do you how do you balance, um, you know, looking for that feedback that says, oh, maybe I have something um, with also building alongside from like a product or an engineering perspective. So I'm curious if either of you have opinions on how you like start to validate um, what it is you're building while building it. What does that balance look like? Uh, take that one first. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, um, <clears throat> so I think, so listening to your early customers is super important, obviously. Uh, for us, like I remember when we installed uh, Intercom at the time and um, and Intercom, so that's this chat tool, right? And it was pretty new. It was kind of new at the time, but it was just a total game changer. I always felt extremely uneasy actually not being able to talk to our clients and uh, or like users. We had a, like a freemium model. Um, and it just gave me like a direct channel. And I think for the first five years, at least I was myself also doing the, doing the chat. And, mm. um, and, and I, I would highly recommend to not only keep like stay on there, but also um, from hindsight, I should have actually all our hires should have been, should have been mandatory to be on the chat. Um, it's, it's, like it's seen as a really low level job, but you learn so much. And people think, I think that feedback looks like uh, someone's telling you like, hey, what if you added this or that feature? Uh, but that's people th that feedback exists and is usually useless. Actually, you don't want your users to tell you what kind of features to add, but they give you feedback more <laughs> like, like I can't log in or I don't understand how this works. That is the kind of uh, uh, feedback that's extremely valuable where you just notice that what's in your head, actually, that's not totally not how your users are, are using your product. And that's the kind of thing that you need to know. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm smiling because I had a, I, I was with my, 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 my dearest friend and, um, she I said, I said, I said, I'm, I'm ready for this feedback. I said, what is my fatal flaw? And she said, your fatal flaw is that you think everyone perceives the world the same way you do. And it's sort of like an extension of what you've described. It, yeah. I, it, we certainly get in our own heads and we're very like chart mogul academic-y. <laughs> and then you like watch a customer trying to use the app and you're like, oh, there's like, they're, they're totally lost. This is like super non-intuitive, right? Yeah. Um, not, to, not to mention the like, what they're trying to interpret on charts is complicated to them. Most people aren't living in 
SaaS unit economics world all day, right? It's like they check it once or twice a week and they have, you know, like they have to reorient themselves to the definition of that metric or something, right? Or what that chart yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. They also like assume some data literacy, which is right. like, yeah, been, which, which you can't assume. The general population doesn't have it. Unfortunately, we have the same issue, right? Um, <laughs> but we're, we're the same in that we, Intercom is actually a really valuable tool for us. Um, it's actually where the majority of our qualified sales opportunities come from. And it's mm -hmm. the primary way that we support our customers, although we do have uh, an onboarding process for customers and account management team. Generally, the first thing is our users are used to just being able to get uh, get a response in chat, and we try to keep that under minutes, like and usually seconds, you know, tens of seconds by during the day. So we're very responsive. Um, and so chat is a huge thing. We also have a roadmap site where people can submit ideas and vote for them. And I agree with Yoram that you don't want your product your product direction to be directed by your customers but in aggregate when they say no. hey when 100 or 200 customers say i would like to do this in your product no. it's a really good signal and it's usually also it's usually a usability thing it's usually because they're stopping them from doing something that they want to do as opposed to something that they dreamed up of um and so i think that's a, a really important thing i'd also say like my in the early days and because i think that was your question is like my my role in the first year or two was helping to get that feedback and and baking that into the product plan um and i've been uh, very fortunate to have a partner who's the founder co-founder of databox who's in charge of product um and we work really closely together in the early days to figure out right, what is it customers want what do we have to build and i'd say we probably spent like the first five years just building what what the market demanded um, mm. uh, in terms of our, the number of integrations we have, the features and capabilities that we had. Like when we started, we didn't have a goal setting feature and that became really critical for certain customers. It's like if we're going to pull all our data into one spot, the first thing we want to do is set goals and track performance to goal. Um, sure. And so that became something we had to build. And that's just one of 20 things, right? Uh, more recently, I would say that we've gotten, uh, you know, we've delegated it. Of course, it's not me and the founder as much. Um, but it's much more about having a vision of where we want to go with building the product and like what we think is possible. And that's a combination of like looking at the market and see how the market's changed because it's changed a lot for us. Our market's changed a lot in the last few years. It's also like taking a look at what the technology is, right? Of course, building artificial intelligence into the product and, and finding ways to deliver users value using AI. Um, and of course, gathering feedback and finding use cases that that um, that customers are, are interested in. So that's much more of a process at this point, um, which involves product marketing, product management, the customer success organization, uh, and of course, leadership of the team. So. And so you both were using Intercom for like reactive, reactive support where customers could reach out to you directly or were you doing something additionally? Oh. We cool. do. So, so we have the chat pane available in the app and on the website so people can start a chat whenever they want. Um, but we also send um, automated, personalized, targeted messaging based on what the user has and hasn't done in the app, uh, which then forces them to respond. Oftentimes, they're not re responding to the question we ask or the thing that we send them, but it's just like, oh, there's a message. I can talk to them and I'm going to ask them the question that I had in my brain from yesterday. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's reactive and proactive. 
exactly. Like users always, almost always do something different than what you had in mind. And mm. I think also getting, if you get the chance to, to, to be with a user while they use the product and you can kind of look over their shoulders without them knowing or that is, uh, that is ideal because you, yeah, you, that, that, that is the only moment that you actually really understand what is going on. And it's probably totally different than what you think. Yeah, I mean, it's the reason that we decided to build a CRM, actually. It's quite interesting. It's like, uh, of course, um, it's a big swing, right? And and we, we used Intercom for like eight years. We've actually just recently moved off of it. But what we would do is we would I would look at the users who were doing the most web sessions. Who are the users that are using our product the most? And what are, what are they doing? And we learned that actually... A lot of our customers were largely already using our product like a CRM. They just had a deep link as a field on their ChartMogul record. And then they were clicking into, right. you know, whatever CRM they might use and then sending the, you know, the customer an email. And so we, you know, had the, had the hopefully bright idea to say like, well, what if we just offered all of this functionality in the existing UI, which we know that they like because they're spending so much time in here anyway. So of course, like it was, you know, we, we took the decision a bit more carefully than this, but like it was, it was like you could see active users in the product and you could, um, you could see some of what they were doing, but then you could also just ask them um, what they were doing and, and how they were using the product. And I think that was, that was quite helpful for us as well and starting to really validate, um, validate, you know, why we were building, who we were building for and, and what they wanted us to deliver. So, uh, I wasn't around for all that, but, uh, but uh, I can uh, speak to it with some degree of, of clarity. Um, Good. Well, maybe we should talk um, talk a little bit um, beyond maybe the first um, few customers. You know, uh, the first starting to find you know some version of product market fit. Which uh, I don't know who, but but someone talks about product market fit as a spectrum, and I really like that idea. Yeah. Um, so not like a switch you flip. Um, but as you start to say, hey, we've really got something. Um, now we want to, to grow our customers and, and maybe our commercial motion to go get more customers faster. Let's talk a little bit about what that looks like. Um, I, I guess like, um, you know, Pete, once you crossed this like initial one, one million mark, uh, how did you start to think about like scaling, um, you know, scaling beyond, um, you know, exactly that? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say we we nailed we nailed it. There was a few wrong turns um, that we've had to correct. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, content marketing was the, is the main driver, and so like we figured out how do we get you know how do we go from five hundred signups a month to a thousand to two thousand, ultimately to where we are now around six thousand a month, and mm -hmm. that that was fairly linear for like the first four years. So it was like oh we found the model, we just keep doing it. That started to flatten out. Um, we got like. Still, we're we're growing year over year in terms of sign up volume, but it started to flatten out and not not grow as fast. Um, and so the other areas we invested in were in uh, being as responsive as we can through our through chat through customer support, um, mm -hmm. being being as thorough as we can in both in the evaluation process. So we go from a free plan to a free trial 
and then that's sales assisted. So there's salespeople available who have expertise in our product and expertise in our integrations and can help people actually get close to fully set up in the product. Um, and so that was a big lever. We then invested a lot in post-sale resources, uh, an onboarding process, an account management process, uh, and teams. Uh, and so we kind of built out the CS function. I'd say we overshot a little bit. We actually, um, unfortunately, had to let some people go um, uh, at the beginning of the year just because we just got a, re a reduced ROI on on additional investment in headcount there. And so we've swung the pivot. We've swung the pendulum a little bit back towards PLG um, and trying to pick away at like the friction points and expand the in-app onboarding process, um, launch launch additional features um, in, uh, and, and try to figure out how do we add more value to existing customers. Um, in 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 ways that are you know less people intensive, um, and so that's been our like mode this year. The other big change I'd say we made is that is that we 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 kind of we shifted a, a little bit away from like a be better strategy to a be different strategy. Um, mm. You know, like I think if you read a lot about like positioning and marketing, most companies try to just be better than their competition. And I'd say that's generally what we tried to do. We tried to be easier to set up. We tried to, um, we, we built tools that are like marketers really like because their uh, visualizations are more attractive and the UI and UX is easy, is, is more in line with modern software. Um, and compared to like some of our competitors where it looks, still looks like a crappy table in the interface and um, you know, it, it, ugly fonts and colors and all that stuff. So that's kind of like was was our strategy for a while: is be better, um, mm -hmm. be more comprehensive, have more integrations. Now we're in we, over the last year plus, we've been focused on like how can we be different? What's different about our architecture, our engineering, and how we built our system that allows us to do something that's different than our competitors? And so that means like. Um, launching a benchmarks product, which allows companies to compare how they perform against like companies um, across thousands of metrics. Um, that means uh, doing things like automatic monitoring of your company's performance to identify anomalies and, and report that out to you. So you don't have to have a human sitting there checking numbers all the time. Um, and these are things we are kind of uniquely capable to do that many of our competitors aren't because of the way that we architected our system. And so I think that's been the big, change more recently is like how do we how do we be different how do we bring something to the market that's different than where our competitors are and that i think elevates then the marketing right because then we can talk about how we're positioned differently how we're delivering different value people some people are like really glom onto that and that creates fans and um and in social media right like when we write it when i write about something on social media on linkedin specifically like I'll get 50, 100 comments because those are people that are using our product and partnered with us. And um, and so like just by being different, we can really build more momentum um, in in our business. Cool. Yeah, I like that. Jorn, what do you think? Uh, so I think, <clears throat> yeah, bet from between one and 10 million, I also don't feel like I'm the person to necessarily ask how to do it because I, I feel like we made every mistake you can possibly make. And um, you said that, so in this, in your report, which is awesome, 13% or something may gets there. 
yeah. we're not even quite there yet. We will. We should get there this year, though. Awesome. Um, um, so 30%, but I think within that 13%, the best companies get there a bit faster than we do. So we're more an expert on how not to do it than <laughs> how to do it. Well, let me ask you this then. How yeah. do you evaluate? So uh, Nick, the CEO of Chartmogul, said something to me um, a few years ago. We were in the process of like setting quarterly goals. And he was like, stop putting so many goals on your list. He was like, yeah. stop. And he's like, he, said, he said, you need to be more strategically lazy. I still think about that to this moment. Um, but he said, look, the reality is, you know, you could choose 45 things to list on your goals, uh, you know, this quarter, but one at best might move the needle. So you need to be really choosy. Um, and so I wonder like, okay, there's all these things you could do. You could build an account management program. You could invest in onboarding. You could build that feature. You could build outbound sales. How do you think about evaluating, you know, which things yeah. to do? to drive the needle. I mean, I have, I do have an answer, I think on, on that. So, you know, I, you, there's a lot of talk about whether you should do hyper-focus or not. And I think it depends, but one thing that you do have to do, and it sounds obvious when I say it, is that you have to be totally focused on your customer. And, and I know it sounds obvious, but what, what happens a lot, and it happened with us also, is as soon as you get a bit of product market fit, you get a bit ahead of yourself and you start hiring and, and pretty soon you become more focused on each other than your customer. And I think you have to really maintain this culture that you kind of are obsessed with delighting your customers and that you, mm -hmm. you have to find a balance between marketing and sales and product. Like what, what Peter said about what, you know, be best or, or, or be different, but either of those means you're really focused on your customer. Uh, and 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 um, and and try to not get too focused on internal uh, BS things, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 that has to be your north star. And and you have to kind of re like it. I think all the best companies have this as their values. Like it's always day zero or whatever. And that, that's that's really you lose that very quickly. And I think there probably a lot of startups out there like us that have some market fit but they haven't fully nailed it yet and and uh, and and i think if you let go of that day zero attitude too soon then uh, then uh, your growth will stall mm. yeah. well said yeah. yeah maybe same question to you Pete. yeah so i'd add that um so like if I can compare and contrast my experience from HubSpot and Databox and uh, very similar to Yoram's story, like we're, we're just under 10 million. So it feels a little like a, a little bit of a fraud here today, but uh, we're close and we're similarly, we'll get there in a very short, short time frame. Um, but uh, you know, at, I remember like the hundred customer party at HubSpot. So I, I think it's like around, it was around 300,000 in annual revenue at HubSpot. And now they're doing 2.2 billion in, in revenue. Um, and so, but I think HubSpot's a good model and it's, it impacts the strategy we follow is it's about taking big swings every year or two. Um, it's like what I sold HubSpot in the beginning, it was a keyword research tool and a blog. Um, and not even, not even, a, you couldn't even change the design of the blog. 
Uh, it was like a crappy blog and not a very thorough keyword research tool. And now HubSpot is, you know, full platform for sales marketing, customer support and all that. And so I think every year or two, we took a really big swing at HubSpot. And I think that's, that's, a, that's similar to what we're doing right now. Maybe not every year or two, um, because we've had, taken a longer time. We haven't raised nearly as much uh, venture capital as HubSpot did. And so we've been much more focused on managing close to break even um, and funding our own growth. And, uh, and But we still have to make those swings. And so like we made one last year, we're in the process of making a really big one right now. Um, and I think those, those are really important in order to get to that 10 million. And I think it goes back to what you were almost saying is like, you're never really done with product market fit. You constantly have to be figuring out like, what does the market need now? How's the market evolved? What, what's the adjacent market we could, we could, um, serve. Um, and I think that you, again, you gotta you figure those things out and then, and then figure out what's your big swing. Uh, and and then prioritize ruthlessly. Like I think it's important. Um, you know, once company we're, we're like a hundred people or so. So like once you get to that size, um, it's it is it is possible to say like you're in charge of this metric and you're in charge of this metric and you're in charge of this metric. But I think as a company, uh, and when you look at like your project e resources, right? Like people outside of CS that are doing the same everything every day. Like but the people in marketing, the people in product and engineering. Like you have to focus them and get them collaborating. And you can't do that if they all have different goals or you have too many goals. And so for us, for example, like one of our big goals is get more of our new and existing customers onto a specific higher price plan that we just launched that has a whole slew of new features on it. And so the whole team's focused on that. Like product marketing is doing interviews, figuring out positioning and copy, product management teams iterating on the product, the RevOps teams training the sales and the, and the account management team. The sales team is focused in on pushing that. Um, we have, you know, product marketing pages. I'm literally writing about it on LinkedIn. Like there's all, everybody's kind of aligned around that that one goal. Not, and that's not the only one we have, but we'll keep that goal to about three three goals per quarter where, we're, where, the, where there's multiple people from multiple teams working on it. Got it. Okay, grand. Um, well, we're close to time. I'm trying to be choosy about whatever last question I have. I also will shortly check the chat. Looks like people are just like really excited to connect with other people who are also building because it can be like a challenging journey. Um, yeah, I, I suppose like, uh, is, it, is it too much of a hot seat to ask you for like, um, you know, a, a takeaway or a piece of advice, uh, you know, takes maybe 10 years, maybe 12 years, and only 13% of businesses get there. Like, um, you know, what, uh, what guidance would you have for someone that's in the thick of it and needs to like zoom out to see, you know, the upward to the right in the, in the valleys and the troughs? Is that what the stat is from your data is uh, it takes 10 to 13 years to get to 10 million for the typical? So it, it, the stat is that 13% of um, businesses get there in a time frame of 10 years. Oh, wait, okay. All right. So we're not that far behind. I <laughs> feel good about it. <laughs> um, go ahead. Um, I liken it to... Really <laughs> I'll buy you a minute here. I liken it to the the uh, 1980s cult classic, The Neverending Story. Yeah. Um, and I do a lot of themed presentations and Falcor is like, a, he's a, a repeat guest when I'm trying to remind people to like take a step back and he 
you know, remember that they're they're on this like uh, remarkable journey. So well, sorry okay. for anyone that's not well, not sorry. seen that that well, must watch film. Yeah, yeah, no, you gotta see that movie. <laughs> Definitely. <clears throat> wow. Um, my, I mean, my number one learning, I think that one is definitely what I said earlier to stay focused on your customers and everybody in your company who makes decisions, ideally has had FaceTime with customers that they understand. Actually, I think that's, that's kind of repeating what I said earlier. The other thing is to listen to your gut feel. And I know you are a data company, so it's maybe like uh you know a bit controversial but i think you have if you have to listen listen to your gut feel and 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 uh, also use data but if data if the data says something different than your gut feel you should like investigate what's going on and never blindly go with the data um and uh, the data is there to help you but in the end, fo follow your instincts. And I think that, that for example, someone like Elon Musk, I see him also <laughs> sometimes doing that. And, and, uh, and as a founder, you have to uh, not be afraid to, to, to just ignore conventional wisdom and do something different. Cool, that's great. I'll leave you with, um, make, make sure you celebrate the effort, I think, and the progress. Uh, I think it's rare for an entrepreneur to ever be happy with where they are, um, yeah. right? Um, and and it's important on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, as you interact, especially as leaders of a company, as we interact with people, is to still recognize when the effort's being put in, even sometimes when the impact's not there. Um, mm -hmm. But it's not too hard to usually find the effort tied to the impact and making sure that you're highlighting that. And I like personally, I think it's no matter how small we actually have a Slack channel, we call it um, quick wins. Um, it used to be called big wins, but it was meant to mean small wins. And th there was too much of a language barrier since we have people from 17 countries. Uh, and so we changed it to quick wins and it's just an opportunity for anybody to share positive feedback from a customer, the launch of something, uh, good 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 progress on specific numbers based on something that they or the team did uh, mm -hmm. and I, that's really important it's just to remember that you can't you can't will yourself to 10 million or beyond you have to uh, make progress uh in baby steps and you want everybody um uh feeling like they're uh, mo you know feeling like they are contributing and i think that's ultimately the motivation gives people the motivation mm -hmm. that gets you to the 10 million because it's hard. Building a startup is hard. Yeah, for sure. You don't want to get stuck in that swamp of sadness. Okay, that's my last never-ending story reference. <laughs> um, good. Well, thank you so very much to the both of you. Just wish you all a pleasant rest of day. And to our panelists, again, thank you so very much. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.